You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. We are starting a new series called Redeemed from the Book of Ruth. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking, like, have you ever felt like God was against you? No? Just me. All right. Just like there was a string of bad things that happened and you just can't catch a break. You're like, God, when it, what, what is going on? Like, when is this going to end? Right? And I've had a, I had a crazy month of February, just kind of like a whirlwind it felt like. And it started uh, with the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. That was, no, that is not a rejoicing thing. Like, that was painful. You know, it's like, that's what I imagine the Israelites felt like when they were, like, beaten by other people. It's like, God, what have we done to sin against you that you're letting the Patriots win again? Um, but then I got sick, and those two are probably related. But I got sick, and my wife and I were driving to the Central Coast, and I was, gonna, I was officiating a wedding, and I got sick. My daughter got sick. She had, like, her eyes looked like she got, like she got in a fight. Like her eyes were all swollen. She was sick. Then I got sick, and then I got a little bit better, and then last week I got pneumonia. And I'm like, what? what is going on? Then I found out this coming Friday I have to have surgery for a torn rotator cuff. And then we've had some financial stuff that comes up out of the blue. And it's like, God, what? What is going on? Like, I don't know. I go to the, the urgent care, to, and they take an x-ray of my chest, right? And I'm, you know, I'm standing against the thing. And they move you around all awkward, right? And then he takes the x-ray. But then the guy looks at the x-rays and doesn't make, make me leave the room. So the doctor had told me, hey, we're going to look to see if there's any fluid in your lungs or if there's a mass in your lungs. I'm like, why, why would you tell me that, first of all? I'm like, why, why would you prep me with that? So he tells me this, we're looking for fluid or a mass in your lungs. And I'm like, okay. So the x-ray tech is looking at the x-rays, and he doesn't kick me out of the room. I've never seen a chest x-ray, right? So all I know is I'm looking at this x-ray, and there's this big old lump on the x-ray, and I'm like, oh, God, it's a mass. Found out that's my heart. <laughs> so if you ever look at a chest x-ray and you see a really big thing, it's probably your heart. So, yeah. So February hasn't, wasn't really fun for me, and now I get pain and hardship and things of that nature can be relative, and you might hear what I just said, and you're like, stop being a sissy. You don't know what I've been through, and you're right, I don't, but those things are relative. And I'm not meaning to complain or, or, or make it seem like my life stinks because it doesn't. I just didn't have a very fun month. Sometimes that happens. And what we see at the beginning of the book of Ruth is this family that has gone through this incredible hardship, like years of hardship, with no mention of God caring, no mention of God doing anything, no mention of God stepping in <clears throat> to help the situation. As a matter of fact, the narrator of the book of Ruth, never mentions God doing anything. God doesn't speak in the book. We never see the author saying anything of God intervening or doing anything. The people in the book, the characters, you know, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they talk about God every, you know, just in passing. But you never see any indication of God's work in the book of Ruth. And it's that really interesting fact that uh, sheds some light on one of the biggest theological principles that we see throughout the book of Ruth. And that's God performs his will despite all obstacles. Regardless of what's going on, God's will is going to come to pass. 
And he, he uses the decisions that all of these people are making. And he's just intertwining human decision with his will to make his will come to pass. And we see the providence of God just being woven throughout this entire story, intersecting of God's will and human decisions. And I just want to point out a few other themes that we see in the book. And it's uh, God cares for those in need. He cares for the marginalized and the foreigner. And there was actually Old Testament law that they had, the Israelites had to take care of foreigners. They had to take care of those who were marginalized by society, of the poor, of widows, of orphans. They had to take care of them. It was written into their law. And this is something that God cares very much about. He cares about the marginalized. He cares about the foreigner. He cares about those in need. Another theme we see in Ruth is this concept of hesed. And hesed is, is this Hebrew word for love. And it, it's kind of this all-encompassing thing. It's love, it's mercy, it's provision, it's commitment, and it's freedom. And when it talks about hesed in the scriptures, it's always shown by a, a more powerful party towards a weaker one. So we see this concept with uh, God showing that love for his people. We see it with uh, Boaz showing that love for Ruth. Um, it's a love that's not based on merit, not based on what you've done. It's something that you can't earn, right? It's, it's Think about the personal relationships that you have, like with your family, right? Like my daughter has not done anything to like earn my love, right? She, she throws up on me. She's pooped on me. She wakes us up in the middle of the night. She started hitting me in the face. Like, when she gets mad, she hits us. The other day, she wanted me to pick her up, so she bit my leg. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Have some manners. Like, is there an obedience school for babies? I don't know. But she hasn't done anything to earn my love, but I love her anyway. Right? I love her. And when it comes to God's love for us, it's 100% based on his commitment to the relationship. Right, Because if it was based on what I've done, then God would not be loving me right now. Because I've done a lot of things to show that there's times where I'm like, I don't, I don't care. Right? We all take matters into our own hands sometimes and forget about God. But it's not based on what we've done. Another theme in the book of Ruth is the value of, the value of women in God's redemptive history and in God's story and in God's plan. And Ruth is one of five women we have Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Mary that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And the one thing that ties them all together is the incredible amount of faith that they had to follow God's plan and to take risks and to be courageous and to do things to uh, take care of themselves and to follow God. Right? At the first sign of trouble, we'll read this in a second. At the first sign of trouble, Naomi's husband leaves, leaves Bethlehem and goes somewhere else to try to make make things better for themselves, right? Naomi, on the other hand, runs towards God, and Ruth takes this huge risk in following her, and the amount of faith that these women has, have is insane. And then the last thing we see in the book of Ruth is redemption, and that's really the, the big point, the big theme in the book of Ruth, and we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time on redemption because there's going to be an entire message dedicated to that. Um, so we're going to jump into chapter one, but I want to ask you, I want you guys to ask the question, uh, to yourselves as we're going through this. Um, how might God be at work in the ordinary and mundane details of my life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to uh, 
learn from your word this morning. I pray that you would uh, help me to preach this the way that you want it preached. And Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do and, and penetrate our hearts and help us to see the truth in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> okay. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live. Wow, I'm getting old. I can't read that. Went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrahites from Bethlehem, Judah. So we just get 10 years of background story here. Right? And it sets up the narrative that drives the rest of what's going on in the book of Ruth. And there's ups and downs. There's all this crazy stuff happening with his family. There's, there's famine. Then there's no famine. Then there's death. Then there's marriage. Then there's two more deaths. Then there's more famine. And then we have these three women who are just left alone by themselves. Let's keep reading. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people... By providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, that's that word has said, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said, and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? We're going to explain all this in a second. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. So hearing that God had provided food in Bethlehem, uh, it literally means house of bread, Naomi decides to go back home. And the author spends a lot of time on Naomi's plea uh, to her daughters-in-law to leave her and go their own way to find husbands and to get themselves taken care of. And I want to point out three things uh, uh, why I think the author spends a lot of time just explaining her plea for them to leave. And the first is uh, Naomi's, the, to point out Naomi's misery, to show how serious this matter is for her, right? She basically lays out, hey, I have nothing to offer you. I have absolutely nothing to give you. Why are you coming with me? There's no reason to come with me because I cannot take care of you, right? Because in, in, in this time, in the ancient Near East culture, um, it was really hard for women, it was really hard for them to be taken care of. They couldn't do, they didn't do, there was nothing in society that allowed them to work for themselves, right? Their well-being was completely dependent on their husband or their sons. And it's kind of a, kind of a not so great system, but that's how it was, right? And society really offered no, no real profession for them outside of prostitution. And with Naomi being an older woman, it was pretty much impossible that she was going to get remarried and have more kids. Somebody wasn't going to come and marry her because she couldn't have kids anymore. So she was kind of just having to settle in her mind. She's saying, I just have to settle for a life of poverty. 
that I'm just going to be poor the rest of my life. I'm just going to be begging for food, begging for money, and I have nothing, so why are you coming with me? Right? Because widows, even though God cares for them, and even though it was a law for them to take care of the widows and take care of the orphans, they were notoriously overlooked, neglected, ignored, and taken advantage of. And so Naomi, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, on the surface, it looked like she had no future at all. So she's giving Orpah and Ruth very sound advice. She's saying, look, you guys are young. You can go get married again. You know, you can get yourself in a, in a good situation. Stay here. Go to your land. Find somebody. Get married. Have kids. Get yourself taken care of. And Orpah says, you know what? That's, that's not a bad decision. I think I'm going to do that. So we highlight, it's highlighting Naomi's misery, and it's also highlighting an Israelite custom. Um, and it kind of sets up this important custom that will take center stage in, in chapters 3 and 4 of Ruth. Uh, when, when an Israelite husband died, uh, his brother was responsible to come and marry, his sis, or marry the dead guy's wife, right? So husband dies, his brother marries dead guy's wife has kids so that his name is carried on and so she can be taken care of. If the, if the guy didn't have a brother, then the next closest uh, relative, male relative, would do it. And this person was referred to as the kinsman redeemer, which if you've read the book of Ruth, you know who that is. That's Boaz. Um, so Naomi is referring to this custom in verse 11. She says, why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husband's? And she's basically saying it's pointless for you to remain committed to a family that can't take care of you. I'm going to be poor. You're going to be poor. I'm not going to have more kids. You're not going to have anybody to marry from my family. So why do you even care? Right? So apparently Naomi has forgotten the fact that Boaz is her family and lives in Bethlehem and can step in and redeem her. But it kind of a little foreshadowing to what's happening in the further chapters. And there's kind of a lesson that, that we can learn here, right? When we've made up our mind that God is against us, we exaggerate our hopelessness, right? One bad thing happens, and pretty, pretty soon, like, the whole world is against us, right? You could look at maybe you had a bad month, and you're like, well, God hates me. You know, God doesn't love me. There's nothing I can do. I guess this, this world is hopeless. My life is hopeless. There's nothing for me anymore. And so I should just stop trying, not go to church anymore, and just live my life. But what Naomi didn't see is that it was God who broke the famine. And it was God who provided her a way home. It was God who prever- pre- preserved Boaz as a kinsman to continue her name. It was God who prompted Ruth to stay with Naomi. And give her the chance of being provided for. But Naomi is so embittered by God's hard providence in her life that she can't see his mercy. You know, like this morning, we came here and uh, Pete and I were walking around and doing stuff. And we're both like soaking wet from all the rain. And we're like, oh my gosh, are we supposed to do this? Are we supposed to set this up? And then like an hour later, the sun came out. Right? But sometimes in our life, all we see is the clouds. And we forget that that, that stuff doesn't last forever. We can't see God's rays of mercy peeping out from behind those dark, ominous clouds. And then we also see Ruth's faithfulness. And this narrative really shows us how amazing Ruth's loyalty is. 
And before she even says a word, you see the seriousness of how, how loyal, how fiercely loyal she is to Naomi. In verse 14, it says that Ruth clung to Naomi, right? The first time we see this word cling, in the Hebrew, it's uh, debak is the word. The first time we see this word in scripture is Genesis 2.24, when it says a husband will, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and he will uh, cleave, he will cling to his wife, right? Making this commitment, making this covenant before the Lord. And it's a, it's a serious thing. And this is the same kind of verbiage that Ruth is using, uh, that they're using to describe what Ruth is doing, right? She's saying, I am not letting you go. I am starting this covenant relationship with you, and I'm not leaving. So this is what Ruth says. This is Ruth's reply. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth makes this this amazing declaration of love, of loyalty to Naomi, and this declaration of faith to a God that she doesn't know. Right? She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. The two nations hated each other, but she's making this declaration of faith to a God that she really doesn't know, and she's breaking from her past, and she's transitioning into an unsure future, and maybe she thinks, hey, it can't get any worse than what we're already dealing with, so why not, I got a friend, why not just take this chance, why not do it, right, but a lot of us take the path of the other daughter-in-law, right, a lot of us take the path that Orpah takes, we choose the thing that makes the most sense to us, right, we, we go based on what we can see, And a lot of times that's backwards, right? We're moving forwards and we're going in the way that maybe God wants us to go. And then things get hard and we remember it used to be easy back there. So we're like, we'll just go back. That's what the Israelites did. They wanted to go back to slavery, right? But they want to go back to what was comfortable. They want to go back to where they had things provided for them, right? And that's kind of what Orpah is doing. She's going back. She's taking the path that looks like it doesn't lead to hardship. She's taking the path that looks like it's safe. Right, but Ruth is making her choice based on the unknown. But she's putting her faith 100%. She's putting her faith and her trust in the Lord. A Lord that has not revealed himself to her. A Lord that he, she doesn't even really know. And I'm sure she had probably heard about God in the family. And she's saying, I'm going to put my trust in him. And we talk about faith of people like Abraham. Right? Abraham's sitting at his house one day. And God, like, audibly speaks to him. He's like, hey, Abram, get up, leave your family, and go to this place I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you immensely. How many of us, if we heard an audible voice of God say, go to this place, and I'm going to give you a crazy blessing, how many of you are going to go, no, I'm not going to do that? It's probably pretty easy to follow God when you hear him tell you how awesome it's going to be. Ruth hears nothing. She hears nothing. I think her faith in this moment is greater than Abraham's faith, who's the father of the faith, right? Ruth has no promise. She has no future to look forward to. She's looking towards homelessness. She's clinging to someone who's trying to push her away and putting her faith in a God that's completely silent on the matter. But she still believes, and she still has faith. Naomi paints this picture of a future that is horrible. It's bleak. It's dark. It has no hope. 
But Ruth grabs her hand and says, okay, let's go. We need people in our life like that. I know when, I, when I'm in a bad mood, right, or I'm exaggerating my hopelessness, I don't like talking to my wife, right, because she's going to be calm and cool-headed about it, and she's going to remind me of the promises of God. And I'm like, I just want to be angry right now. I just want to mope. I just want to be sad. I just want to sit here and cry and complain like everything's bad. Right? But she's like, hey. She doesn't slap me. She says, stop it. What's wrong with you? Right? We like to go to people who are going to complain with us. Right? We want to fix our problems. Oh, I'm addicted to whatever. You got an addiction to pornography, right? So you go to somebody else who's addicted to pornography. Hey, how do I get out of this? Oh, I'm in an abusive relationship. Let me talk to this person who's also in an abusive relationship. How do I get out of this? Oh, you don't. You just love him. You can't go to some, some blind leading the blind. It doesn't work. Sorry, rabbit trail. Let's get back on topic. Where was I? We obviously have the benefit of seeing how things worked out for Ruth, right? We can look at the situation and go, duh, of course you followed God. But when we put ourselves in a similar situation, a lot of the times we don't make the same decision. We go back to where it's comfortable. When you put your trust in God, he will work things out. It's just, that's how it works. God works things out for his purposes, for his glory, for his name, and he brings us along for the ride. And we're like Ruth, gleaning the blessing that God is leaving behind. We see in Ruth the ideal picture of faith, right? It's a faith that sees beyond bitter setbacks. It's a freedom from the securities and comforts in the world, right? And I say the word freedom here because we can get so comfortable with the life that we've built. But what do we see here? Uh, tradition tells us that this family was wealthy at one point, right? And they had gotten comfortable in the securities and the comforts that they had built for themselves. Once it's all taken away, what do you have left? Nothing but God. Right? We become so dependent on what we've earned and what we've done to provide for our own families that we don't feel the need to step out in faith and trust God to provide for us or ask God for help, like Christina was saying this morning. We feel like we don't need it. God, I can do it by myself. Faith gives us the courage to venture into the unknown with God on our side. What was the song? Not for a minute was I forsaken. Is that how it goes? Not for a minute was I forsaken. God is not leaving you. He might be silent on the matter for a second, but God is there. And you've got to see that God is, is behind the scenes working things out for his glory, and he's bringing you along for the ride, and you'll get blessed in the process. Faith helps us to have a radical commitment to God and to others. Okay, so real quick before we move on. One more look at what Ruth is committing to. She's committing to leaving her family and her land. As far as she knows, she's committing to a life of widowhood, childlessness, and poverty. She's going to an unknown land with people that she doesn't know who speak a different language. And she's, com she's, she's committing, in a sense, more radical than marriage. She's saying, where you die, I will die, and I will be buried there. 
she's not saying till death do us part. She's saying even death, I will not part you. That makes sense. I will not part you even in death. I'm going to stay. What? Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Naomi means uh, pleasant. Pleasant. Naomi, pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Sorry if there's anybody in here named Mara. That word in Hebrew means bitter. Call me, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She just, you just change your name? I'm going to start going by it. Bruce Wayne. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What do you think of Naomi's theology here, right? She's like, I don't want to be pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord's hand is against me. That's, that's the state of my life right now. A lot of times when we find ourselves in hardship, we like to take on aspects of like the prosperity gospel, right? And we think, I've got to give more money. I just got to have more faith because obviously there's sin in my life, right? I was sick. You know, I tell people, hey, I'm sick. And they're like, no, you're not. In Jesus' name, you're healed. And then like two seconds later, I'm like, I'm still sick. Right? They want to name it and claim it. And I was at a service one time, and uh, they were giving away gift certificates to people that had license plate covers for the church on their car. And there was a picture of a, a really nice Lexus. And this lady comes up. The pastor's like, whose car is this? We have a gift certificate for you. You're representing our church. And a lady walks up, and he's like, is that your car? She's like, in Jesus' name it is. <laughs> Look, a name it, claim it thing, it doesn't work. You know, we're like, oh, I just need to think more positive thoughts. What happens when all my thoughts are positive and my life still sucks? What happens when I pray for days and days and days and days and days that I get better and then I get worse? Does that mean God is not in control anymore? Does that mean God doesn't care? No. It just means that we've got to get our mind out of the fact that God is not a magic genie that bends to our every whim and fancy. You can't just make a wish and he goes, okay, that's great. Okay. So in spite of everything that's happened to her, Naomi remains unshakable about three things. The first one is that God exists. She remains unshakable on the fact that God exists. Number two, God is sovereign. That this is part of his plan in some way and that God has afflicted her. Even though she had been afflicted by God, even though God was not stepping in and dealing with this situation, even though she's seeing God's providence in a hard, uh, painful way, she doesn't let that deter her faith. She still chooses to go back to God. She still follows him, right? She 
had, however, forgotten that God does turn things around for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph's in slavery. Joseph's a foreigner in, in another land, but God blesses him, right? And Genesis 50, 20, uh, to paraphrase, Joseph tells his brothers, uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I'm sure Naomi had forgotten this in the situation, just like we forget in the situation when things are bad and we think God hates us. We think everything is against us and we see the devil in everything. The devil's in all the details. No, he's not. Stop it. Give him too much credit. Okay. Um, God loves to turn, thing around, turn things around for his personal good, for his glory, and for his purposes. You following me with this? I've mentioned this like four times now. God's not going to do things just to make you feel better, right? God can and will turn things around for his good. And if you choose to have faith and follow him, it works out for your good as well. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. You're with me. The awesome thing about God working for his glory is that if we trust in his purposes, our decisions and actions become intertwined with God's purposes, and he works in our behalf as well. It's those mundane and ordinary details of our life where God is at work. So ask yourself again, how is God at work in the ordinary and mundane details of my life? And the chapter ends by giving us a preview of what's to come in chapter 2. Uh, as well as showing us that there's a glimmer of hope, right? Naomi doesn't know it, but God has this huge plan for her and Ruth. And he has masterfully orchestrated the end of this famine along with their arrival in Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest time to further his plans to be a blessing to both of them. It's really awesome when you see all of these things just intertwined. You're like, God, how did you do that? Okay. We're going to look at four quick lessons that we can learn from this story, and then we're going to close. The first one is God's sovereign rule, right? God reigns in the affairs of his people. He rules the nations, and he rules families. God's providence extends to Capitol Hill and your kitchen table, right? He is in control, and we should have faith like these women did. We should have faith like Naomi and Ruth had. Whatever else they doubted, they never doubted that God was involved in every aspect of their life, right? What are you going through? What's the bigger picture? Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? What might God be teaching you in the, in the midst of this painful season of life? God gives rain, he takes rain. He gives food, he takes food. He gives life and he takes life. He is sovereign and he rules over every aspect of our lives. And Naomi realized that nothing is understood outside of relation to God, right? That as the all-encompassing and all-pervading reality in the universe, that God alone can bring order to the chaos. And that God alone could bring hope to her family that had been dealt with so bitterly. And so she's willing to wait. Oh, man, what if we just waited? I wonder how many of us give up. How many times we've given up before we get to where God, get to the plan that God has for us? And we go back like the other sister, like the other sister-in-law did. And we stop moving forward and we stop following God because we can't see. We can't see what's coming. 
But faith is, you know, walking, with, walking by faith is walking without being able to see everything in front of you, right? And she's just trusting. Both of them are trusting. They're putting their faith in God and they're trusting. They're saying, God, we know that you alone can end this. We know that you are in control. We're going to follow you. It doesn't matter how long it takes. We're all in. So we see God's sovereign rule and we see God's mysterious providence. Sometimes, sometimes the, the way that God deals with us and the things that he brings into our life, they're not fun. I mean, seriously, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a season of your life where you're following God? You're making the right decisions. You're doing everything that you know to do, but it's not working. Again, just me. All right. Um, he dealt bitterly with Naomi, but in the short term, that's all she could see. It permeated her thoughts. It permeated everything that she saw was bitterness. We can look back and we can speculate and we can have theological arguments about why this happened. Well, it's because they went to Moab and that's a country of sinners and they didn't trust God or whatever. Maybe that's true. But the problem is sometimes bad things happen for no apparent reason. Psalm 34, 19. Do I have it? No, I don't. Psalm 34, 19 says, The person who does what is right may have many troubles. The person who does what is right can still have a lot of stuff going on in their life. That's not good. But the Lord saves him from them all. Nothing in Scripture promises that we will escape affliction in life. You know, you hear people preach the gospel and they're like, just come to Jesus. He wants to be your friend. He wants to help you live your best life now. Buy this book that I wrote. And it will tell you all these self-help things about how to live your best life now. Give us money. Because if you give us money, God will bless your bank account. Doesn't work that way, or else I would be rich. Sometimes bad things happen. Look at Job. He didn't do nothing. He was the most righteous person in the world. And what does he do when he wants answers from God? He's like, God, I demand you answer me on this. And he's like, oh, you demand? Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Since you're so old and wise, why don't you tell me? And God refuses to answer him. And the, the message is, sometimes things are hard, and it happens. But what we do know from Scripture, the promise that we have, is that God will deliver us from those afflictions. You get that? God will deliver us from those afflictions. Sometimes it happens quick. Sometimes it takes a long time. But don't lose hope. Don't lose your faith. Okay, let's look at this. Even if the affliction was caused by Naomi's sin, the fact that God rescues her shows that he's willing to turn his judgment against us into joy for us. That's to say that even if you've done so much bad stuff to sin against the Lord, he's still willing to take that judgment and turn it around and make it joy if you put your trust in him, if you put your faith in him, if you turn away from those sins, if you repent. God is way better than all of us. Right? Anybody, anybody else like to hold a grudge? 
Yeah. Oh, you want to be my friend now? What about 10 years ago? Oh, I see. I'm going to treat you like you treated me 10 years ago. Aren't you a Christian? Uh, Don't bring that into this. Jesus turned the other cheek, not me. We have to be willing to surrender fully to God. Don't ever think that your past means there's no hope for your future. Oh, man, that's good. There is hope for your future. Tell somebody. There's hope for your future. Stop being bitter. All right. God's good purposes. Not only does God reign in our affairs, not only is his providence hard at times, but in everything he does, he loves to work his purposes for the good and happiness of his people. In one of the worst periods of the history of Israel, the time of the judges, when everybody did their own thing, The last three chapters of Judges alone are enough to warrant there to be an explicit warning label on the front of the Bible. I go home, read the last three chapters of Judges. You're going to go, what? Why is this in here? But even in this, this, this terrible time, right, God was working quietly behind the scenes through the tragedy of a single family to prepare the way for Israel's greatest king, right? Because we see at the end of the book of Ruth that uh, Ruth is Dave, King David's great-grandmother. Pretty awesome. And to even make the story more awesome, Boaz is Rahab's great-grandson. You remember Rahab, the prostitute that hid the spies in Jericho? Oh, man, this is so, this is so cool. You see... Boaz grows up with this woman, Rahab, probably hearing about all these stories about how she was marginalized, but the the Lord brought her into the the community. And then Boaz, when put in the same exact position, does that for Ruth. Oh, man, you just, God never speaks in the book, but God's hand is upon everything that happens. That is the truth for your life today, too. Even if you feel like God is silent right now, it doesn't mean that God is not working on your behalf. He is. He's behind the scenes. He's doing things. He's preparing something greater for you. He's just asking you to have faith and trust him and follow him along the path. He was filling Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, all their friends, with great joy in the process. We can learn from Ruth that God is at work in your life preparing a future for you. And then the last lesson we see is God's experiential freedom. And worship team, you guys can make your way up here. Um, If you trust in the sovereign goodness of God, if you choose to pursue him, then you are truly free, right? When God calls, you can answer. Right? If you take all your eggs and put them in God's basket, that's a good thing. Put all your eggs in that basket. Right? And when God calls, you can answer. You can make radical commitments. You can undertake new adventures. You can say no to things that are not good for you and your family in order to say yes to things that God wants without worrying about how you're going to be provided for because you are trusting in the Lord. You can find freedom and courage and strength to keep commitments that you've already made. When you believe in the sovereignty of God, when you believe that he loves to work for those who trust in him, it gives you a freedom and a joy that is unshakable in times of hardship. Let 
We need to stop getting so freaked out at the first sign of something bad happening. It doesn't mean that God is against you, right? The book of Ruth gives us a glimpse into the hidden work of God during the worst of times. I have another scripture that I added, but I didn't put it on the slide. It's Romans 15, verses 4 and 13. It says, for everything that was written in the past, that is the scriptures, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The book of Ruth shows us that we can have hope. Because I can pretty much guarantee that none of us have it as bad as this family did. And all of us know more about Jesus than Ruth did. Know more about God than Ruth did. And it's an encouragement. That through their endurance, we can also see that if we endure, there's hope at the end for us. And then Paul closes by saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how might God be at work in the mundane and ordinary details of your life? Those seemingly small, insignificant things that you don't pay much attention to. Right? Sometimes we're looking for like the giant sign, like the, 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 the airplane that's carrying the banner behind it that says, hey, Mike, go this way. But God is working in the smaller details. You can uh, tickle the ivory there for me. And we're going to move into a time of communion. And as we do that, uh, it, it brings about the whole redemption theme again. Right? And because Ruth put her faith in God, because she trusted in his sovereign rule, because she stayed true even in the midst of the providence that she didn't understand, she saw God's good purposes work in her life and she experienced freedom. It's not much of a spoiler alert unless you've never actually wrote, read the book of Ruth, but we know that Boaz stepped in and redeemed Ruth and Naomi and redeemed that family and blessed them, right? And it shows us a, a bigger picture of what God did, did for us through Christ, right? That when we... We've put our hope and our trust in God. And if we do that, the Lord has provided a redeemer for us. That Jesus is our ultimate redeemer. And that he can redeem us from that, that life of famine. That emptiness, that bleak feeling, that darkness that we feel. Whatever you want to describe it as, that God, through Jesus, has brought a way for us to experience freedom. And he has redeemed us. Robin, you can lower the lights. And that's really the, the essence of the gospel message. Right, first and foremost, that God loves you. Like, do you get that? Like, we say that a lot, but do, do you ever just let that sink in? Like, 
I think about myself, right? Think about myself when I was at my absolute worst, right? When I was at the end of my rope, the bottom of the barrel, whatever you want to say it. At that moment, God loved me. Not any more or any less than any other point in my life. But God loved me. And you're here this morning and God says, I'm in love with you. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday, last week, this morning. It doesn't matter what you're planning on doing later, right? At this moment, right where you are, all the issues, all the problems, all the things that you think are wrong, God says, I love you. Right, but the issue is we want to do things our own way and we don't want to follow God. And that sinful nature creates a divide. And by our own actions, we separate ourselves from the Lord. But God says, hey, I love you. And that's that concept that we talked about, said. And God takes that love and he puts it into action and he sends his son. And Jesus takes every ounce of God's wrath upon himself, right? The wrath that was meant for me, the judgment and punishment that was meant for me. God says, no, you don't deserve it. Yo, he says, you do deserve it, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to put it on my son. And Jesus comes and dies the death that I deserve, takes the punishment that I deserve so that I can be born again. So that you can be born again. So that if you put your hope and trust and your faith in Jesus, you too can be redeemed. And you don't have to live a life wondering, is anybody with me? Is anybody for me? Does anybody love me? Is anybody on my side? Because you know that there is a God in heaven that cares. The things you needed for a kinsman redeemer is you needed somebody who was able. The only person in the history of the universe that was able to do, that was able to take the sin of the world was Jesus. You need somebody who's willing. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but your will, not mine, be done. He was willing. And it had to be somebody that was close enough. And scripture tells us that we are children of God and heirs, co-heirs with Christ. So Jesus took the wrath of God on himself, willingly died a sinner's death and then rose from the grave three days later to show us that there is hope. And that's what we remember as we come to the table this morning broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that brings us salvation, right? And for those of us who, is, who have accepted God's gift of salvation, uh, communion offers us an opportunity to remember that commitment that Jesus made to us. It wasn't just a one-time act. Jesus says, I'm committing my life to you, literally. It's a chance for us to remember the commitment that we made to God when we put our faith in his son. And for those of us who 
maybe you're here this morning and you haven't turned away from your sin, you haven't put your trust in God, and you haven't accepted God's gift of salvation, my question is, what is stopping you from doing that right now? We could spend the rest of the day listening to testimony after testimony about how that, that moment when somebody put their faith in God is the moment that their life was turned around for the better. And I'm not saying that at the snap of a finger, God takes away all your problems. But I am saying that at the snap of a finger, God grants you eternal life. But I am saying that at the snap of a finger, God deposits his spirit inside of you. I am saying that at the snap of a finger, God gives you a hope and a future and a, and a companion in his spirit to help lead and guide you into the truth. So I'm gonna pray. And if you wanna give your heart to the Lord today, if you say, Pastor Mike, today is the day that I want to, like we said it this morning at the call to worship, today is the day of salvation. If you want to put your hope and you want to put your trust in Jesus, you want to give God your heart, I just want you to pray this with me. You don't have to say it out loud verbatim. You can pray in your, in your mind. Just offer your heart to the Lord this morning. Let's just pray this with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.